Welcome to The Secret Life of Cookies, where we try to solve the world's problems through the miracle of carbohydrates, one recipe at a time, with host Marissa Rothkoff and her dog, Bosco. Hello and welcome to The Secret Life of Cookies this week. Where I live, all the cherry blossom trees are at peak. Pink has exploded everywhere, as has pollen, which is now covering all the cars here in a lovely dusting of light green. Uh, perennials are cropping up in my garden that I didn't even know I planted. And you know, lawsuits. Lawsuits are bursting out all over. What a week. Uh, here to make sense of it all is Sisters-in-Law co-host Kimberly Atkins Store, with a special guest appearance by Calvin the Cat, who believes in the cat law of eminent domain, which translates to, if it fits, I sits. Anywho, we have a lot to get to. And hello to Kimberly Atkins Store. Thank you so much for being on The Secret Life of Cookies today. Hi, Marissa. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited. Um, you are, um, for like the two people out there who need a reminder, you're a Boston Globe columnist. You're an MSNBC contributor. You are one of the fine stars of the Sisters and Hashtag Sisters-in-Law podcast and, um, a tr you know, oh, a trained lawyer and journalist. So, you know, a couple of things, um, which are all great. But the thing I learned about you that impresses me the most is that you will, pr and correct me if I'm wrong. You will proudly say that you are a good pie baker. Is that true? That is true. That is one of the things that I am, one of the skills I'm very confident in when it comes to food preparation. I'm an okay cook. You know, I'm a pretty good cook too, but my pies are spot on. So I, I'm always proud of them. And they're the one thing that I can make, you know, without a recipe, without, uh, you know, just sort of feeling my way through and, and muscle memory. So I, I am a pie baker, which I think is honestly, Marissa, it's, it's a lot easier than baking cakes and cookies and stuff because you have more opportunities to correct mistakes in a pie than you do. I completely agree with you. So let's talk about the nation's psyche and not about law for a second. And um, why do you think people are so afraid of making pie? Because I, I mean, I had like... Um, famous bakers on this show to show people that baking pie crust is a no-brainer and people are afraid like somehow they have to rely on Pillsbury rollout crusts or whatever it is because they're afraid they won't be flaky enough yeah I I don't know well first of all don't don't uh, I don't um no disrespect to the Pillsbury rollout because that is a game changer None. when you use it actually it's really good <laughs> <laughs> it's really good. You know, one reason that I used to um, make my own pie crust was, well, in part because my mom taught me how to do it. But also because when you couldn't make your own, the only thing that was available were those horrible frozen ones that just tasted so bad and would ruin all of your work. So I was like, forget that. I'm going to make my own crust. Like if I'm going to put this work in, I'm going to make my own crust. And I found it's not really that hard and I there were times that you know the lean years and I was living alone I would use anything I, if I didn't have a rolling pin I'd use a glass um you know you use anything and it would get the job done and it it makes the whole pie tastes so much better um uh so yeah I I it's it's one of those things that it seems really scary but once you do it it it's sort of demystified and it, it gets easier now and, and yeah sometimes there'll be mishaps the last pie I baked I believe it was a chicken pot pie 
Um, and I was very proud of it. And I was, you know, put it in the oven. And within minutes, like part of the crust just kind of fell off. And, and it just looked all wonky. I took a picture of it and put it on Instagram. It's like, what do you call these little pieces that fall off your pie the minute you put them in? And everyone was like, delicious snacks. Exactly. <laughs> Something for the chef. That is exactly right. Yes. Um, as I warned you, my cat has showed up at the front, at the back door and needs to be let in. So I'm just walking over for anybody who hears that. And I'm sure the cat will show up as soon as possible on the counter. I don't let the cat walk on the counter. It just does it because he can. Um, when I'm talking yes. to people. Um, I'm As we're talking, I'm rolling out a pie crust. It's a whole wheat pie crust because I decided to be all sort of, I don't know. I like whole wheat flour. Oh. Um, it makes a kind of nuttier... I don't know. It gives a little more there, there. And I'm going to fill it with a very spicy, which is unusual for me. I mean, spice filled apple, apple pie, apple, mix, apple raspberry mixture Ooh. that I have here. I wish you could smell it. Oh, it's nice. Me too. Um, it's got um, <laughs> nutmeg and cinnamon and a little bit of ginger in it. And then I'm going to add raspberries to it. And I'm going to put a crumble topping as a sort of I'd like to think of crumble topping as lighter, which of course it really isn't. But yeah, but it reminds me of summer or warm weather, you know, so I'm, I'm with you. Me too. And the whole apple raspberry thing is like, I don't know, but around this time of year, I open up the vegetable drawer and I go, oh, oh, I remember buying that apple and maybe things aren't as happy as possible. And it's time, it's time to transition away from apples. So here we are making a nice pie. Um, do you have a specialty pie? Uh, my best pies are apple um, and also sweet potato pie. I make sweet potato pie every Thanksgiving. That's always my contribution to the Thanksgiving table. Um, yeah, those are my two go-tos. Is there a secret to your sweet potato pie? Like the combination of spices? Yeah, or... you know, well, interesting for both of those pies, my secret ingredient is uh, a shot or maybe a half a shot of very good bourbon. Um, and the thing is about it, I mean, it's not, it, it's, it does not, it's not alcoholic in any sense. It's such a small amount and it also will burn off, you know, in the hour it's in the, uh, in the oven, but it sort of blends with those spices, that cinnamon and the nutmeg and other things, and just brings out the natural flavors of both apples and sweet potatoes in a way that's so unique. Um, I can't believe I gave away my secret. I gave away my secret, Marissa. <laughs> but nobody really knows the flair with which you do it. And they, um, they'll never be able to measure it properly, I'm sure, even though I'm, I'm going to go over and get the gin and, and splash them in because right? I mean, if it's there. And if you say it's good, I should try it. Um, so I'm busy rolling out this crust. It has a big streaks of, of butter in it because I want it to be a flaky crust. I don't know if you can see it there, big flakes. Um, and for the, for the people at home, there are big smears of butter in it. Um, thank you for radio cooking TV. Um, so uh, I have, there's so much to talk about as much as I'd like to talk about pie. Like, is key lime pie the best pie? Which is sort of my feeling. Um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, aside from your sweet potato pie, uh, one of the top sort of uh, graham cracker crusted pies. I guess we have to go by crust. Like, 
double crust pie. What's the best double crust? What's the best crumb pie? What's the best, you know? Yeah, it's a lot of categories. They're all good. (laughs) Is there a bad pie? I don't, I'm not sure I've ever had a bad pie. Or there's categorically a bad pie. Certainly some individual pies have been better than others, but I've, I'm such a sweets person. I can't imagine that there's a yeah. bad pie. It seems mean. It's like saying that kitten is ugly. Exactly. You know, they're off. Exactly. <laughs> um, it's, it's just not possible. Um, so uh, not much has been going on this week. No, very slow um, week. Slow week. So how do you fill your time? Uh, so for many of us, we watched, um, this today we're recording this on Wednesday. This will probably come out Saturday. Um, so what do you think will have happened by Saturday? Just kidding. In the world of law uh, (laughs) is if, um, let's just do a quick wrap up on the whole Murdoch thing. In fact, let's not even wrap it up. Let's look forward. Because I feel that a lot of us, I mean, I I was watching Katie Turr as the news broke and I kind of went, darn it, you know, because I think we all wanted, well, many of us, if we don't work at Fox, wanted some lurid sort of details to all come out. And I think we're all very disappointed to the best of my understanding that Fox doesn't really have to make a proper apology. Yeah, not to the people who uh, would matter most would be their viewers. Um, right. Yeah, I shared that. Look, I, um, as a former civil civil litigation attorney, I understand that at the end of the day, lawsuits like this are meant to make a plaintiff whole. You know, so in this case, Dominion was harmed in a way, and they brought the suit in order to get some sort of recompense for the harm that Fox News did to them. And I think in any measurable way, you can say that this settlement, this sizable settlement, especially to Dominion, um, does that to some extent. But I also believe that the civil justice system can serve another purpose, and, and it's set up to do so, which is to punish wrongdoers, not in a criminal way, but in a way that they can feel. And so one of my biggest disappointments that the case settled was that there is now no opportunity for punitive damages to be levied uh, against these defendants and that those damages could go much higher than whatever the compensatory award might be. And it could really hit Fox News and its cohorts where it hurts. And the same standard for coming uh, for deciding punitive damages is basically the same standard for actual malice, which is from the evidence that we saw, it seemed that Dominion was able to prove in spades. So that was my biggest disappointment. I think in the long run, this money, given the profitability of Fox, isn't going to mean a lot to them. The fact that it's over means a lot to them. Um, And that in a way they this was, you know, a, a win for Fox, even if it was a win for dominion so the part of me that was looking for justice is disappointed but is this the way that the civil justice system works all the time yes right and i think that goes to kind of my my larger i don't know if the word grievance is right but i think a lot of us sort of sunk into the couch when we heard the news because and i'm talking about lay people like myself who don't who don't, you know, like a lot of us are trying to be, I'm trying to be very um, 
like a grown up, I think is the phrase said the person who just had a huge birthday, that I'm really trying to be a grown up, right? Um, about it and understand and people like you and Joyce and Joanne Banks and, um, ex and uh, explain to me that you have to be patient with patient with justice. But my feeling lately, and I'm sure that's why I so many people feel like I do, is that we can look at Clarence Thomas, we can look at what's happening with abortion, uh, whether it's Kaczmarek or Dobbs, we can look at um, Donald Trump and his myriad cases that are occurring. And we don't necessarily, and I can, at a hundred other cases, I can talk about um, the police officers that uh, beat up black kids and all the black people, kids who are shot just for showing up at people's doors and people with guns who aren't really getting any sort of anything happening to them for the most part, right? And I think we all are, I guess, a little tired and a little feeling that, how do I know when, like, is justice moving the way it should? Is, am I just being overly sensitive? No. I, Where is justice today? Yeah, I I am with you. I I am. I was also disappointed by this, you know, palpably so, uh, by the settlement and all of the things that you mentioned. I think if any of the listeners who also listen to hashtag Sisters in Law know, I'm the least patient of the four sisters <laughs> like I am I was so I mean I feel like you know we had about a year's worth of, of episodes where I was just like Mary Garland where are you you know <laughs> come on with it <laughs> and it's you know it's the others who are, who are talking about being patient and that it'll all work out but I understand your frustration and it's also I mean one thing that um we really saw, I really felt, and I think others felt too, especially before the George Floyd verdict, was that we see these injustices happen over and over and over again. And accountability is just, it, it never follows. It never seems to follow. It's always very fleeting. And um, that can that can be hard. Um, but it's also, this is an extraordinary time where so many norms have been broken that it's really hard for me anyway, just to sit back and say, okay, you know, we do have a great legal system. We do have accountability and we do need to let this process play itself out the same way I used to think before. It's harder to say that now because so many rules and norms have been broken that I'm less and less certain that justice will, the justice system will work as it should. Um, even yeah, even all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, I don't see it the same way. I covered the court for ten years. I still write about it a lot, and it's just not the institution that I saw it as, or that it was when I was in law school. And it's really hard to think about the law in the same way, knowing that that's the case. So it's hard. You're you're not alone. What changes do you feel that you've seen in the Supreme Court over the past? I don't know. I mean. I don't know, since Reagan, really, but like what yeah. big changes have you seen? Well, it's just um, the politicization of it is so palpable now. And that didn't just happen overnight. And that didn't just happen with the uh, appointment of uh, Donald Trump's three uh, appointees. It, it The seeds were planted long before that. I think around the nomination of the failed nomination of Bork, 
brought about this idea that this is that confirmation hearings are politicized, they're theater, they're not meant to actually get actual information because if you answer these questions, <laughs> it's going to be trouble for you. <laughs> so just don't answer these questions. Just say, you know, give platitudes like, well, that is settled law. That case was decided. <laughs> you know, never saying what you will do when you have the power to rule in a different way. Don't Don't say anything about that. Um, and, and so it's almost like that should be against the law. Yeah. And s- like not giving a proper answer. And so you don't have any real way to vet um, who the people are or really get an understanding about what this court might be. Um, I think the politics or even when you try when you try to if you have a president who I believe, you know, I don't believe that this was the right decision, but I believe when Barack Obama nominated Merrick Garland to the Supreme Court, he was trying to find a consensus candidate, you know, someone who was respected and, and you know, center of left and, and, and you know, right. thought, how, how in the world could Republicans oppose this guy? Well, guess what? <laughs> you know, but that the the system was already so broken in a way that I think he didn't even understand that that would have never worked. And it ended up being um, leading to a situation that was terribly detrimental to the reputation of the institution. So I just think so many things have been so broken for so long and no one has fixed them because nobody, the Supreme Court, they're like deities, right? We think of them as a way above everyone else and the rules don't apply to them because literally they don't. Rules don't apply to them. And this is why we have ended up where we are now. Well, certain rules do apply to them. And Clarence Thomas decided to flout, like just ignore this them. This is true. Which really is super cheeky. That's super cheeky. Um, I'm sure he's not the first person to do it. But I mean, first of all, I, I mean... So if I'm going to offer you a lot of money and you know that I have a lot of like Nazi memorabilia in my house, which I don't, I just want to point out to you. Do you, do you have some sense that maybe I'm not, shouldn't be your best friend? <laughs> I mean, I, so I've been thinking a lot about, you know, I've been trying to think of what might've gone through Clarence Thomas's mind when he is palling up to, after he's a justice, palling up to somebody with deep pockets and very, very clear, uh, a very, very clear political agenda um, when it comes to a lot of things, including the business before the court, why he thinks that was a good idea. Yes, everybody's entitled to have friends, (laughs) but, you know, I'm not even a public servant, but as a journalist, either because of rules by my employer or just things that I think are are right. I'm not allowed to let like a subject I'm interviewing buy me a sandwich. Like I'm not allowed to accept anything, like even de minimis, you know, kind of, you know, gifts and stuff. Cause I, and I wouldn't want to, because then I wouldn't want anybody to question my integrity as a journalist. Exactly. That occurs to me, even if I was self-employed and writing a sub stack, I wouldn't do that because I want people to, um, I, I want people to have faith in my integrity, and just that the fact that that aspect didn't occur to him, I think, goes to my other point: is that Supreme Court justices are are deified in a way in our system, and I get it. The reason, one reason that they are, is because the way the founders set this up is that they gave them lifetime tenure so that they would be impervious to the changes of the political winds right the idea was if they're not elected there you know there's no check on them they can work they can be free to be completely independent of everyone well 
you're not independent if you, you know, let some guy give you cash and let, you know, your mom continue to live in the house you bought for free. Um, that's not, that's not independence and integrity. So I just don't know why it didn't occur to him. He's a smart man. Um, I, I don't get it. Is it, I think maybe it's that it didn't even have to occur to him. Mm, maybe yeah. he just, he has a feeling like you're saying that he is above the law because he is, he is the law, Yeah, you know? And I think his wife must feel the same way too. I mean, imagine the conversation. <laughs> I wish everyone could have seen um, Kimberly's face when I said that. Uh, how would you describe that? Um, large eyed? Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, she certainly think of the conversations. She she has a sense of like an entitlement that is just off the charts. My goodness, my goodness, like, does she ever? <laughs> um, and again, this is you know things that she has done um, in the you know right wing sphere. Also, go back twenty plus years. You know, she's been doing this the whole time, involved in organizations that either are advocating certain positions to the court or parties to the court. Uh, all the way back since before the Obamacare cases. So um, that's not new. It's gotten seemingly more bizarre and extreme as time goes on. Um, but I think that definitely is true. But you, you bring up a good point about rules, because generally speaking, there are two things when it comes to the Supreme Court, the justices anyway, is that you have these ethical rules that are that bind other federal judges, but that by definition do not uh, apply to the Supreme Court. But you have other things. These financial disclosure rules, that does apply to the Supreme Court. Like that's an actual rule that they have to follow. Um, so the fact that he still wasn't doing that is just really, it's just really unbelievable. Yeah, I agree. And I, I'm sure, uh, absolutely. Um, you know, as uh, I write about food and restaurants and I would never think to take a free meal from a restaurant I was reviewing. First of all, I'd go incog incognito. You know, I would go without telling anybody that I was going. I'd pay in cash. As proud of myself as I am, I don't think that everyone has a photograph of me in their kitchen going, if you see this face, give her free stuff, you know? <laughs> so, but and yet I still comport myself as a journalist. It's... um I mean, it also, I think this week, it also comes home a little more because it's tax week. And as you paid your, I don't know how many, how much money you may have paid, but all I know is that we're being so much IRS. If you check cards, we are so meticulous. We don't want to break any laws. We, we want to do our duty. And I, as we like go trudging off to our um, CPA, who's lovely. Um, she's listening. Hi, Maureen. Um, <laughs> she, um, I, every time I hand hand over these checks, I'm like, Donald Trump never handed over a check like this because I'm like I said earlier, kind of like a petulant child. <laughs> no, but, that's totally. But he, but he <laughs> reasonable. I think. Am the I same the only thing. one? <laughs> I think the same thing. I get very grumpy in you know March and April as my husband and I are putting these documents together because I'm looking at the amount of money, and it's like, how come? Exactly. How come? Like actual rich people aren't paying this much money <laughs> yet we are exactly this is crazy i know <laughs> my father was an immigrant to this country and he 
couldn't think of any like he liked the fourth of july and he liked tax day because he felt like he was doing his duty as an american to pay taxes and build roads and have police chiefs mm -hmm. and police officers and fire departments and infrastructure and he thought that was swell that he could live in america and do that he may have been the last person ever but <laughs> I, I appreciate what we're supposed to do no i appreciate that too oh. i just don't appreciate the lack of i believe that look, I believe that where I am now, which is in a, a better place than I was 10 years ago, that I should pay more taxes than I did 10 years ago. And I do. I think that's the right thing. And I think people who make more than me should pay more taxes too. I think that that is fair. That's how we ensure that we have all the things that we need to make our government work. Um, so I do agree with your dad in that sense. I just don't believe in the unfairness of the rich people getting off the hook. Yeah, I don't think he did either. <laughs> um, I have since poured the filling of the um, apples and raspberries into the pie. Exciting. And it's really pretty. I'm, I'm going to show it to you. Oh, soon. my gosh. That's amazing. See, you're like me, too. You're not a careful arranger of the apple slices. You're a pour them in kind of person. Exactly, because I hope they get all – I also didn't peel them either oh. for all the people at home who are like, well, that's my laziness. But I'm gonna try also, that, I like though. to color it. It probably not just the color, but it probably adds a nice little tartness to it as well. That's probably Absolutely. delightful. Yeah, and it speeds you along the way to faster apple pie. Um, you don't have to peel it and cut your finger and get that little bit of knuckle skin in. Um, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> everybody's now turned this off. Going, <laughs> I know you've never done that. You've never done that. Never. Disgusting. Um. <laughs> A little interesting thing that happened this week that I'd, I'd love your insight into is Fonnie Willis um, uh, getting up in the face, I guess, of the lawyer for the um, electors. What what happened there? Yeah, that's what's that about? That's really interesting because it brings up this uh, the, uh, this principle in the law that I don't think it's a lot of attention. Um, so generally speaking, what what happens is there's this one uh, uh, attorney. Um, I believe her name is, is uh, Kimberly DeVroe, who is representing a lot of the uh, alleged fake electors from the fake elector scheme. Um, and so when you have uh, a, a case, whether it's civil or criminal, a lot of times when you have a lot of people who are essentially being accused of the same thing or that are witnesses or potential defendants in something arising out of the same set of facts, you will have an attorney that will represent multiple of them. What you think about it, it's kind of efficient. If you if it's the same facts, you have somebody who's steeped in the issues that they can represent all of these people if they're similar, similarly situated. Well, the one time that that becomes a problem is if the interests of those individuals stop aligning, right? If they're not all being accused of the exact same thing and the exact same venture or if something happens as is alleged in this case they start testifying against each other not only is it a bad idea for them to continue to be represented by the same attorney in a lot of cases I think maybe every case that could be a violation of the um, of the uh, attorney's duty to these clients and a lot of times professional responsibility rules would require you to advise one or more of those of those clients to seek out their own representation because now they are adversarial in some way. 
essentially i didn't realize they were squealing on right other. right you can't yeah right. you can't do, you can't represent the same you know that it doesn't make sense to have the same attorney representing people with adverse even like when i talk to friends who are going through quote unquote um you know uh easy divorces and they have the same attorney i'm like no you cannot yeah. have the same attorney you need different att- even if everything is hunky-dory and you've agreed on everything that's great you'll have to pay the attorney less money because it's worth less work for them to do get separate attorneys right so um what fonnie willis is alleging is that this lawyer is continuing to represent these uh fake electors when they have testified against each other uh, she also made another, if if proven, serious allegation that she made uh, immunity, off proffered immunity deals to some of these uh, individuals, and the attorney didn't present it to them. They were unaware that these immunity deals were offered. Um, so, you know, the attorney denied this and says, "Look, you know, the, these these interviews were done on the on the record under oath. We'll see what they if they actually testified against each, each other soon enough, which is true. We will see." Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's just an so. interesting thing that, you know, I think most people don't think about if they're not actual attorneys, how these principles work and why they are important. So I will be watching to see how that plays out, because it will be really interesting if there were immunity deals offered to these people or if they have been turning on each other um, and they're still being represented by the same attorney. And how how do you not offer your client immunity? Like, isn't that... If like if if that call comes in and you're my client, yeah. I'm gonna call you and say I got some kind of good news, yeah. right? Or at least give them the option because sometimes immunity comes with a hitch, right? Like you get you get granted immunity, but then you that means you can't plead the fifth in other cases that might uh, make a difference to your future liability. There are things to talk about, so you should present it and present all of the options and all everything that it means, and allow your client to make the decision at the end of the day. You can advise them, but the, it's the it's the client's decision. So yeah, that not presenting it is a big no no. If that indeed is what happened, yeah. I mean, that's what I read, so I think it's kind of shocking yeah. myself. Um, I think an, another teeny bit of news: we have like six white nationalists finally charged. I mean, that's a case from the Charlottesville case. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Slow wheels of justice, yeah. indeed. That's, I think that's, to me, that's exactly, that's exactly like the example I can bring up after what we were talking about, yeah. you know, um, patience. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it is patience. It's hard. It's hard to be that patient. And listen, it's not that these cases are any slower than I think people who have had any, um, uh, any experience with the criminal justice system themselves or with their family, these things do take a long time, a lot of the times, um, and even longer in civil. I mean, honestly, this Dominion, the fact that this Dominion case was ready to go to trial as quickly as it did was phenomenal. I mean, there were cases that were already underway when I started working at my law firm. I worked there for three years. I left. They were still going on. I would meet the other lawyers, you know, friends of mine years later, catch up with them that the case is still going. You know, they're like, oh, we just got a trial date. And it's like seven years after it was fine. Like these things take forever. So that actually was an example of quick, you know, justice moving quickly um, to the extent that there was justice. But um, a lot of times this is this is very usual, unfortunately. 
And is is that just a case of the courts being overloaded or are there certain measures that have to be taken that aren't taken? I mean, that are have to be taken? Yeah. It's a, what is it that... It's a combination of things. Yes, it certainly is underfunding, under-resourcing of uh, people in the court system. It's also, you know, investigators. Sometimes they want to make sure that their case is done right. And they, you know... Um, that's apparently is what Merrick Garland keeps telling us that, you know, you, you, ha- you should do things <laughs> right and not do it fast and not work on anybody else's time frame. Okay. Um, so that is a factor, but there's also a different principle, right? Like the whole principle of the speedy trial, right? Is because when you're charged with something, evidence is preciously perishable. You know, memories of witnesses fade, evidence fades, as time pass, urgency fades. And so people should have the right to have whatever charges against them brought in a prompt way so that they can answer to them and that the wheels of justice can move forward. So it's not just not fair to you know society, but it's also not fair to people who are charged with crimes a lot of this time. So um, yeah, I mean, so those are two competing interests, but in reality, things tend to move more slowly than quickly. I feel that one of the things that moved quite quickly, and I don't, that's just because I think because it was such a gut punch, was the Dobbs decision. And then we have Mr. Kaczmarek this week, who suddenly decided he was better than the FDA. And I don't really, I don't really quite understand how that's possible. And I know I simplified it, but no, but before that's I a, put this pie in the oven, that's you know, a, yeah, that's an accurate simplification. Look, if anybody hasn't read that ruling by Judge Kaczmarek, you don't have to be a lawyer to read that and think, wait, a judge actually wrote this? Like it wasn't, it wasn't a normal ruling. It was like a screed <laughs> that you know essentially chastised the FDA for not considering this one you know, study put forward by this conservative group who sought to prevent um, Mifeprestone from getting FDA approval. And it's, it's not like even that this drug was approved on an emergency basis. Approval of this drug by the FDA took four years, four years where they considered all kinds of evidence, studies, you know, experts in, in, in pharmaceuticals looking into this. And four years later said, OK, we will approve it under these circumstances. And this judge is stepping in and saying, well, wait, you didn't read this report. And when they complained, you didn't respond for 20 years. It's like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> so what are you talking about how, how is how is that okay it's not i mean the only one good thing that we can take away from this in terms of you know other drugs that might become in the crosshairs of political attacks is that the fifth circuit which you know uh, uh heard this appeal is the most i believe the most conservative court in the country i believe it's more conservative than the supreme court right so if they said all right, you can't second guess a 20-year-old <laughs> FDA approval decision. Then it's going to be pretty hard for somebody to second guess a, you know, a long-standing FDA approval decision in any other court or any other circumstance. So if there's a small victory, there's that one. Like if that was too crazy even for them, right? But I think yeah, but I think they were certainly trying to um craft something that they think that the Supreme Court would make stick. And I think that's why they said, well, the drug can stay approved, but all these things that have happened in the last several years, that has made it easier 
to for people to get access to this drug well hold your horses on that you're going to have to litigate that up the chain things that uh rolled back the um limit uh from up to seven weeks to 10 which is still very early in a pregnancy right a lot of people at 10 weeks don't know they're pregnant um things that require you to visit a a a a doctor three times as opposed to having this done in your own home um things that restrict it from being mailed things that just make it really hard for people to get that's okay and i think there is probably some thinking among these conservative judges on the fifth circuit that if they craft there's no way they knew the supreme court was couldn't uphold overturning a 20 year old you know overturning approval of a drug that's been approved for 20 years they might be able to hold on to that. So I think they kind of were hinting, winking, saying, hey, why don't you do this? Um, and we'll see. The Supreme Court, as we record this, is still thinking about it. But it's also a big switcheroo, as you wrote in the Boston Globe piece, between, like, federalism. Yes. And, you know, <laughs> um, can you explain to people who didn't have, who don't have Boston Globe um, Yeah subscriptions and should because it's a great newspaper. Thank you. Yeah. So the whole idea that we have heard since uh, Roe and Casey were decided was this idea from conservatives that no, this, the Supreme Court wrongly stripped the rights of states away to decide for themselves what is right for them. And abortion should be within that. That is not something that should be decided on a nationwide basis. Well, the minute Dobbs, which also claimed to, uh, to, to be based on that principle. The minute Dobbs landed, what's the first thing that happened? Conservatives started pushing for a nationwide abortion ban. It's like, wait a minute, what happened to states' rights? What happened to federalism? We have a system where we explicitly gave authority to uh, agencies like the FDA to decide things about like drug distribution, because if every state was making this rule for themselves, it would be chaos and no one would get care. So we have delegated that, but we, okay. So now you got what you wanted. States have the right to outlaw abortion if they want to, and other states have the right to legalize it, protect it and, and make it as accessible as possible. But no, no, that's not okay. No, don't you go mailing these drugs to states like New York or Massachusetts. It, it's really, it's, it's amazing how principles fall by the wayside when uh, you want the result that you want. Yeah, I've seen a lot of that lately. Yeah. <laughs> um, with Congress, lots of things, <sighs> a lot of examples. We could go on all day. Yes. Um, unfortunately, we can't go on until the cows come home or the pie is done. And the pie has gone into the Good. oven at 425 degrees, and then it'll be dropped down to about 350 to finish its cooking. Nice. Do you cover the crust or no? I should, but I, there's so much cr- crumble on it right now that I think um, I'll, I'll watch the edges to see if they burn. Um, it's you know it's a very it is a very um, kind pie to make you know if the crust shrinks if anything happens and also like what happens people get way too caught up in like the flakiness nobody's looking nobody nobody's nobody cares I agree they really don't people are just so happy and if your crust is a little chewy or whatever put whipped cream on it put ice cream on it I I, all the better all fantastically solved problems you have some delicious fruit in there. Nope, nobody cares. You can't go wrong. That's another reason why I like baking pies because it's a, it's a crowd pleaser. Right. 
it's a cra- every, everybody loves pies. <laughs> pies and chocolate chip cookies to me are like the quintessential American yes. happy food. Yes. I mean, if we can settle on one thing today, let us settle upon that. Um, <laughs> I, I want to wrap up, but I you said something, a couple of things. You say lots of good things. Let's really say that. But um, you are an Aries gal like myself. I, I'm getting the sense. And you have had or having a birthday? Yes, happy. I mean, it's happy, almost, we're almost out of it. Out of, happy belated. Are we out of Aries? Yeah, happy belated. Um, uh, and you wrote about um, society uh, punishing women for aging. She said pouring retinol like bathing in retinol every night um me <laughs> not you you look great um it, it's true and do you think it's getting do you think there's it's getting better if you you know some people like Mika Brzezinski are like making a big push yeah. for 50 women over 50 and really trying to bring some light to it and I would like that yeah I think it is getting better in ways but not in enough ways. And I also think that it's getting better in a way that is kind of gaslighting people, which is one of the points that I made. It's like, you know, because we are, we're, we do, we are told age gracefully, like it's okay, like embrace your age in all of this. But if you show up somewhere with, you know, a filler that's visible, they excoriate you. Or if you, if you don't look like JLo, you know, right. I'm like close to JLo's age, but I don't look like no, no norm. JLo wouldn't look like JLo if she weren't JLo. Right. But that's the Je- standard. Jennifer Aniston. Right. Did you see her in that Adam Sandler movie? Right. It's how, like, how this is happen? people are like, oh yeah, you can work when you're 50. If you look like this, you know, and it's like, come on. Like it's, it's still an age where if you show your gray hair or if you show your wrinkles, women in particular, it doesn't apply the same way to men. Um, you are punished for it. You are not deemed um, worthy. But at the same time, as I also point out in this piece, there's really no good age to be a woman. Like I remember when I was young, I was dismissed as inexperienced and unknowledgeable. When I was in my 30s, you know, potential employers were terrified that my womb might work and they would have to like pay me to not work for a couple months. Um, they, you know, then you get older and it's like you're over the hit. I mean, there's no right age to be a woman in the work in the workplace. <laughs> nope. Maybe you took time off to be with your right. kids and then you're like, I, I have all this experience, but then I, yeah. Um, yeah. And also, or applying for jobs yeah. where they, they, instantly discount your resume because they think you're going to want more money than a 28 year old because, yep. well, I mean, maybe I deserve it yeah. because I have so much experience I'm bringing to the table. It's harder to underpay an older woman. Women are underpaid their whole careers, but they reach a point, most of them that they get hip to what's going on. And it's harder to underpay you when you get older. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's happy. Um, <laughs> speaking of that, um, as um, as someone who teaches journalists, and um, I I have kids every day who are like want to go into journalism. Do you have any um, words for them? You know what? Do it. Do it. Like you know, there are times that even I get discouraged, as you can kind of tell from this conversation. And I was at. Um, 
actually my alma mater law school, uh, Boston University, but I've also gone back to my journalism school at Columbia and talked, spoken to students. And I always leave that so inspired and so um, um, ready to redouble my own efforts in pursuing, seeking out the truth and telling it plainly um, from the excitement of young people. And young people see so clearly what's happening. They understand the stakes better than anyone else. And I think there is no, there, there's no better group of people who stand ready to be the next generation of journalists in our country than the young people that we have. And I really would encourage them. It doesn't pay much. You know, most, the vast majority of journalism jobs are not glamorous or high profile, but they're so important. And even as, you know, newspapers and other news organizations struggle, new forms keep coming up, you know, things like Substacks and independent journalism. And um, and there are still papers, you know, storied papers like the Boston Globe that still survive. So um, I really, I hope that it, that young people are not discouraged from this in the way that in the last few years, I know, um, some young people were discouraged from becoming going to law school and going into the law because they just thought that justice didn't really work. Although I think maybe now that tide is turning well, now that people are more empowered to fix things. Um, I really do hope that young people will save us. So <laughs> I say do it. Um, and, you know, any way I can be a mentor to young people, I'm happy to do it. Yeah, that's my, my feeling is that these people are really uh, much more eyes wide open than many generations in a while because they have to be, unfortunately. Yeah, indeed. You know, these are the, this is the generation that grew up having active shooter drills. Yeah. Um, so uh, onwards and upwards, yes. I guess, which is what my mother used to say, onwards and upwards, um, embrace your age, whatever it is. And um, don't be afraid of making pie. Do you have any other important words for the world? <laughs> Um, you know what? History teaches us that moments that moments in our society are cyclical, right? Progress is followed by regress and the other way around. Um, so know that things can get better, even if they don't seem bright right now. And, you know, the lot of, a lot of good work of a lot of people, including you, are helping us get to that better place. So do not despair. Um, I think there was a, a wise woman who pointed out that what went on in Tennessee in the House of Representatives or um, there really is one of those points that you're talking about. Yes. Like maybe this is a time of progression. Yes. Maybe it's we're just beginning to see that. I hope so. I so, believe so. Uh, let's, let's, um, that's a very happy note and, uh, or upbeat note. And I thank you so much for being here and spending the time. And I'm sorry I can't share the pie with you, but you know how to make it yourself. And that's awesome. <laughs> Let me know if you make one. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> I really enjoyed talking uh, food and all the other things in the world with you. Thank you for joining us. Have a great week. Be sure to follow Kimberly on Twitter and listen to the Sisters-in-Law podcast, which will be doing some live events in May around the country. Go to the hashtag Sisters-in-Law podcast page to check for tickets near you. As for me, if you haven't yet, please subscribe to my Substack at marissarothkopf.substack.com for recipes, politics, and yeah, pictures of my pets. Have a great week.